John Farmer. I am the campus director for Campus Outreach at Payne College. We've been there for, my wife and I, Jaquel, have been there for two years now. And I also serve as a pastoral intern at First Pres, about a couple blocks away, downtown. Um, and I'm also in seminary at Erskine Theological Seminary. And I'm, I'm really thankful to have this opportunity to open up God's word with you guys this morning. Um, I've been told that you all are making your way through the songs of Ascent, and I'm really thankful to be able to pick up in that same series. So for all of you that have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 129, and that's what we'll be looking at. Um, as you turn there, a couple of words about this psalm. Um, this psalm is unpolished. It's, it's a very abrupt song. When you just read it through one time, you begin to wonder who wrote this. And we don't know exactly who wrote it, but the more and more I've churned over it, looked at it, studied it, it's got to be some, somebody had to have written this that's similar to my dad. Um, as you might imagine, my dad's not a small man. Um, and he has these humongous hands that are uh, scarred up and that just tell a story uh, of, of battle, right? One time, he has this huge gash on his left thumb, and uh, he tells me the story that one time when he was uh, early in his marriage to my mother, uh, he cut his hand and almost cut his thumb completely off. Um, he's just not, so, so he's not a soft man. He, he tells me that, you know, he put a rag on his hand and drove himself to the hospital um, just one of those kind of guys. And, and it seems like whoever wrote this psalm is one of those kind of guys. He's battle-tested. He's got the scars to prove it. He knows what it means to persevere in the Christian life. And, um, and he's just a, he's an OG in that community. And he is, trying to, he is trying to put the people of God on game, right? So if you don't know that terminology, essentially what he's trying to do is he's trying to impart to them some things he's been through himself. He's been through the battles and he's got the scars to prove it. He's made it to the other side and now he wants to help the community of faith to be that kind of a persevering community. This psalm isn't written for those who come in to the Sunday morning worship and everything is perfect and everything is going exactly how they planned it in their life. This psalm was written for those people who are fighting for joy who with every last breath is begging God just to take the next step forward. So if you find yourself in need of perseverance, let's look at, let's look at God's word here and receive its encouragement. Psalm 129, starting in verse 1, says this, <clears throat> Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth up. Let Israel now say, Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They've made, their, they've made their pharaohs long. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let, let them be like the grass of the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, 
The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Let's pray and we'll unpack um, God's word. Father, thank you for this morning. Um, thank you um, for these people. And I pray, would you feed us with the bread of heaven? Would you nourish us? Um, and, and for me, would the, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O oh God? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Um, the great American philosopher, Mike Tyson, once said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. February 11th, 1990, he was putting that to the test again. Um, does anybody remember Tyson's glory days by chance, by show of hands? Okay, few of us remember Tyson's glory days. He was, he was like a god amongst men. He, th there were great athletes and there were great boxers and then there was Mike Tyson. And in 1990, he, going into this particular fight, he was 37-0. and 0 most of which by knockout. One time, an uncle of mine ordered a Tyson fight, and um, we spent the whole night like hanging out, watching the undercard bouts and all those kind of things, and I had this perfect spot right in front of the television, and I'd run, this is a true story, I ran out of popcorn, um, like right when the fight was starting, not a big deal, went to go get popcorn, came back, and the fight was over. 17-second knockout. Before this particular bout in, in 1990, um, the fight he had before that lasted 93 seconds. He made quick work of people. He once said, um, when I'm fighting someone, when I'm, when, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm aiming at them, I'm aiming at the back of their head. He's trying, to, he's trying to punch through people. And that's how he acted. And everybody in Vegas knew that this fight was going to be a cakewalk for Tyson. Um, James Buster Douglas was the man that he was supposed to be fighting. And... Um, Vegas, he, he had already lost four or five fought, fights before this, and Vegas had him at a 42 to 1 underdog. I mean, so somebody that voted, uh, that, that, uh, that betted on Buster Douglas that night could have made themselves a big fortune if he would have won. Everybody thought it was going to be a wash from beginning to end, and the fight starts, and something crazy happens. It's actually a pretty decent fight, and most of the judges have Buster Douglas winning. And round after round, these men are battling and Buster Douglas does not even belong in the ring with Tyson and they're going back and forth, trading blows and, and standing toe to toe with one another. And then the eighth round comes. The very end of the eighth round, Tyson does what everybody expected him to. He bobs and weaves and uses, uses his smaller frame to get on the inside of Buster Douglas's guard and he hits him with a flush with a signature uppercut. Buster Douglas' head snaps back, and he kind of looks like a, a scene from Hungry Hungry Hippos. His head extends, and he falls to the canvas. The ref starts counting him. One, two, three. By three, he leans onto his shoulder, and, and he's kind of looking up. And it's as if he's saying, do I really want to keep going? Do I really want to keep in this fight with this man? Finally, he pushes himself up. The ref okays him to keep fighting, and the round ends. 
thankfully for him. The ninth round starts, and as you would expect, Tyson is energized. He comes out. He's, just, he's trying to end the fight as quickly as possible. At this point, Tyson's throwing no jabs, just hooks and uppercuts, haymakers trying to end the fight. And there's a slugfest, and surprisingly, Buster Douglas stands in there and, and is going back and forth with him. Then in round 10, the unthinkable happens. Buster Douglas steps back, catches Tyson with an uppercut, and Tyson, for the first time in his career, wobbles, stumbles backwards. Buster Douglas, at that point, attacks four punches in a row, and Tyson's out. He, he in, in a lot of ways, slayed Goliath. Um, the commentator said this is the single greatest upset, not in boxing history, but in sports history. There's no way this should have ever happened. This was supposed to be a warm-up fight for Mike Tyson. Um, the commentator at the end of the fight, like, like always happens, talks to the victor, and, and he says, Buster Douglas, you did the impossible. How did you do the impossible? And Buster says, my mom. My mom, my mom, my mom, God bless her heart. In a documentary that came out years later, he kind of explained exactly what was going on when he was on the canvas. And um, he said this, he said, I made my mom a promise. His mom had a terminal illness, and she actually died a few days before the fight took place. And he said, I made a promise to my mom that I was going to be the champ. So when I had that choice... Uh, as to whether I wanted to stay on the ground or get up, I remembered that promise, and I got up. Now, the Christian has something far greater than a promise that we make to God. We've got something far shorer than that. The Christian has God's own hand of provision. And when we feel like we've been knocked to the canvas, right, when we feel like the, 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 the trials, the persecution, the giants of life are, or, or the waves of life are washing over us, we've got something better than a promise that we make to God. We've got God's own promise to provide for us. And because God promises to provide perseverance for us, we've got to step into that same perseverance. This is what the psalmist is trying to explain to us. So let's look down at verse 1 through 3. What, what are the things that this psalmist has, has found that God has provided for him that he might persevere in this, in this long walk, uh, this, this long obedience in the same direction. Um, verse 1, it says, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth up. Now, it's really interesting because this is like not a typical intro to, to a song or a worship song. It, it's kind of, he, he, he's one of those guys that bursts through the door and just says it exactly how it is. And some of us have those friends, right, that are just honest enough to tell you when things are not going well in their life or just honest enough to talk to you when, uh, when, when there's no Instagram filters on it um, or, or not via uh, updating you on their latest accomplishment via Facebook. And, and that's already instructive for us as Christians is that this world needs people that are going to be honest when there's struggle, when there's pain, when there's doubt, when there's hurt. Um, and that struggle, that pain, actually sets people up for freedom. There's many examples of that. 
But he doesn't just start there. He doesn't just talk about his own pain and, and, and walk through the front door and say, hey, not everything has been perfect in my life and not even everything is going right right now. He doesn't just stay there. He goes on in verse 2 and 3. He says, let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth up, yet they have not prevailed against me. He is, he is setting the people of God up for that same amount of vulnerability. He is, he is walking us into corporate lament. But not just corporate lament, also a corporate recalling of the good things that God has done um, in our lives in response. And this is something really key that the church often forgets, that I in my own life often forget. When, when, we talk, when we think about our union with, with Christ, we are very quick to remember that we have been adopted as his kids, that he is our father, and, he, and, and we are his uh, sons and daughters. Um, and in that adoption, we think merely vertically. We think we are in right relationship with God, and, and God is now pleased with us. And that's only one portion of what it means to be adopted and redeemed by God. We've also been brought into a family of siblings and brothers and sisters that are meant to carry our burdens. Proverbs 17, 17 says this, a friend loves always and a brother is born for adversity. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, some pretty familiar verses that says it this way. It says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet with one another as is some's habit. So it's a pretty familiar verse for, for many of us, but the context of that verse is what sets it up for us to understand what in the heck he's talking about. He goes on to say this in verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. From the inception of the church, there has been struggle, there has been pain, there has been hardship, there has been individuals who have gone through intensely painful things, and Israel's history as a whole corporately have these monumental things that have happened in, Israel's life, in, in the life of Israel that felt like a punch to the gut. What he's saying to us, what the psalmist is saying to us is, we can't make it through this life without each other. And that we need each other to share our stories, to share our laments and our complaints. And then look, look again down at verse, uh, the end of verse 2. Yet they have not prevailed against me. We need to share how God has delivered. We are all in need of knowing how God has delivered us from certain things. And we draw on each other's strength. I had an old football coach who used to tell this story. Um, he, he would literally tell this before, uh, before some football games. He said, uh, a group of men died and went to hell. He, he started, and we were in a public school, which is, now I look back on it, I'm like, wow, that's crazy. But he said, a group of men died and went to hell, and they woke up and they were surprised. They woke up in hell and they were surprised because hell was not at all as bad or as ugly or as dirty as they thought it was going to be. They were actually surprised that hell smelled very, very sweet. As they wiped their eyes and they, they, they saw one another, they were seated at this banquet table. And right in front of them is the source of that sweet smell, was this stew 
um, made of meat and vegetables and broth. It was this perfect combination. And they looked down at their hands and they had utensils taped to their hands so that they might eat. And one by one, each of them started to dig into the stew with the utensils taped to their hands, um, only to, to realize that the utensils were way too long and there's nothing that they could do to ever, um, to ever eat this sweet smell. And for all of eternity, they were hungry and never fed. They had food right before them, but could, but could never enjoy the nourishment that they were given. They were tortured. Another group of men dies and wakes up in heaven, and it's a very similar scene to the, the scene in hell. Um, in heaven, everybody's seated around a nice banquet table. There's this sweet smell of stew in, in the air, and each man is seated at this long banquet table, and they also had utensils taped to their hands, and these utensils were still too long for them to feed themselves. So one by one, they reached across the table, and they began to feed one another. And for the rest of eternity, they enjoyed the sustenance that each one could provide to one another. Um, we need each other. And, and there are times in this Christian walk where you cannot feed yourself. And if you are only relying on be- feeding yourself, you're going to starve. You need, you, you need brothers and sisters in your life that can speak into it. Brothers and sisters in your life that have been through hardships and trials. Brothers and sisters in your life that can be honest with you and you can be honest with them. So who is feeding you? Who, who are you feeding? And I know trust is a, is a commodity that is, that is hard to gain and easy to lose, right? But, but let me just challenge you as Redemption Church. Have one person at least in your life. Who's one person in your life that you know has gone through hard things um, and God has seen them through it? Because that is God's provision for you. God says, I love you so much. I not only made you my son, but I made you a part of a greater, a, a, a greater church, brothers and sisters. He goes on. God's provided people um, in our lives that we might persevere. Not only that, God has provided his own presence. Verse 4, it says, The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Now, it's kind of a really interesting place to just kind of put a, a just kind of this truth bomb, right? The Lord is righteous. Yeah, you're, you're hurting and you're painful, but the Lord is righteous, right? Why would he just out of nowhere drop, drop that phrase there? Doesn't it feel a little insensitive? Um, well, I like how one commentator translates the verse. The, 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 ver, the, the word that's used there for righteous is a very common Hebrew word. It's simply sadiq, which, which means righteousness. But it's not a righteousness that's in a vacuum. One commentator said it this way, Yahweh is loyal. Yahweh is loyal. Eugene Peterson, the, uh, the translator of the Message Bible, he said it this way, God wouldn't put, it up, put up with it, he sticks with us. God sticks with us. So, so this righteousness that, um, that the psalmist is proclaiming here in verse 4, it's not just a, a righteousness in a vacuum. He is righteous towards you. He is up, he's upholding his end of the bargain. He hasn't gone anywhere. 
That, that's what the psalmist is saying. God has not left you alone. He's there with you in the midst of it. And isn't that, a, isn't that a major theme of the whole Bible? That God's there? That God sticks with his people? Has, ever, has, has there ever been a time in, in history that God has not stuck with his people? He stuck with Adam and Eve and provided a way forward even in the midst of their sin. He stuck with them. He could have destroyed them and started all over. He stuck with, with Adam and Eve. He stuck with Abraham and Sarah in the midst of barrenness and unbelief and, and Sarah, Sarah laughing at God in his face. He stuck with them. He says, I'm, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. He stuck with Joseph after being sold into slavery and unrighteously jailed twice for a total of 13 years. A 17-year-old kid jailed, uh, sold into slavery, mistreated for 13. He stuck with Joseph. <clears throat> he stuck with Israel during 400 years of slavery. He stuck with Moses through four, uh, and Israel through the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. He stuck with David when it seemed like Saul was never going to relinquish his throne. He stuck with the prophets when those around them persecuted them for their message. He stuck with Israel during 70 years of exile after being taken in captivity by Assyria and Babylon. He stuck with the 12 after they abandoned the Lord Jesus. He stuck with them. He stuck with Peter specifically after he had denied him three times, eventually restoring him. He stuck with the sinner, sinner Saul when he was persecuting the church, eventually making him an apostle. And he stuck with me. I became a Christian my sophomore year of college down in Valdosta, and I had no plans to know Jesus. No thank you. I'd rather play football and party with girls. That's what I want to do. And the Lord Jesus says, I got a different plan for you. He showed me the truths of the gospel and snatched me out of my life of sin into a life of worship with him. And I had no plans for that. And my guess is, if you recall the acts in your life, God is stuck with you. My guess is we've all got skeletons in our closet that we can't believe we did that thing or that we said that thing or... Um, whatever it is, and God has, God has said, I'm not going anywhere. You're still mine, and I'm still yours. God sticks with us. The Lord is righteous. He's loyal to us. <clears throat> not only that, verse, uh, verse 4, uh, the, the last half of verse 4, he has cut the cords of the wicked. It is God's typical and normative pattern to set the captives free. He sets free the oppressed people. You know, uh, Hebrews 11 is this huge recounting of all of the good and glorious things God has done for his people and done through his people. And um, it, it recounts God's faithfulness um, to all of these saints. Some, some call it the hall of faith. His faithfulness to all these saints. I want to read a portion of that. Um, Hebrews 11, starting in verse two, uh, 32, it says this. What more shall we say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and about David 
and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fiery flames, escaped from the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and rooted foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. God has set captives free throughout all of biblical history. He has stuck with his people throughout all biblical history. And the normative pattern is, is to step in and bring deliverance. But, you know, Hebrews 11 actually turns right there. And it goes on to remind us that sometimes God's freeing is not the way we think that it should be. Picking back up in verse 35 in Hebrews 11, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They, were, they went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. This is my favorite part of the, uh, uh, of the whole verse, right, uh, of the whole chunk right here. Verse 38. The world was not worthy of them. You know, God has promised to be with us in the midst of all of the trials of life. And the normative, the, the normal pattern of the way he does things is he sets us free. He, he generally speaking, eventually changes our circumstances, and sometimes he does not. But when he doesn't change our circumstances, he still works in us, and he allows us to rise above our circumstances. He sets the captives free, right? He has cut the cords of the wicked, where the persecution might have, have once been washing over you, weighing you down, destroying your life, destroying your job, destroying your marriage. Now God says, I've got a better way for you. I'm with you. I'm going to cut the cords of the wicked, either by changing the circumstances um, or by fortifying you and your inner person and helping you rise above it. We've got to remember the big story that God is telling, that we are, we are, these, we are these portions, and our whole stories are this, are these, these little spots of the greater story that God is telling. And God is telling a story of his own faithfulness. And he's not going to allow any of our stories to wreck that story. When he steps into your life, he says, you are now a part of this great story of, of my redemption and faithfulness to people, and there's nothing you can do um, to mess up the story that I'm telling. That should bring us great comfort. In this portion of God's word, God is promising that one day we're going to look back at our hard circumstances and we will say with the psalmist, Yahweh is righteous. God is loyal. He sticks with us. You will undoubtedly look back and see the fingerprints of God all throughout the story, even if in this moment you don't feel that. <clears throat> So God provides people that we might persevere. God provides his own presence. Um, but then at, but lastly, God uh, 
provides prayer. So look at verses 5 through 8. It says, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward. Let all be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder the sheaves of his arms, nor do those who pass by say the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now, this is, this is what theologians call a prayer of imprecation, right? Which just simply means the psalmist, uh, under divine inspiration, is praying for the harm of other people. And that might jive with, uh, with what we normally think about how we ought to talk and how we ought to pray and how we ought to treat people. Aren't we supposed to love our enemies? Aren't we supposed to uh, bless those that curse us? Um, the best way that I can that I can explain what a, what a, uh, a psalm of imprecation is or does. Um, it's like a friend of mine who, um, from, since he was a, a young kid, struggled with depression. And, and sometimes that depression um, bubbled up in these fits of rage. And even from when he was four or five years old, he would just have this uncontrollable rage that he dealt with. And his dad was a big burly man with a big chest and a big belly. And, and often his dad, so that he wouldn't harm, so that his son wouldn't harm himself or others around him, his dad would say, son, take it, take it out on me. And my friend at four or five years old would just begin to pound his dad in the gut and in the chest and sometimes in the neck. And he would just hit and punch and punch and punch until finally he had no more energy and he would fall on his father's chest. And his father would wrap him up. That's kind of what a psalm of imprecation is. It is God saying, you can come to me with the, with the deepest brokenness that you have because I can take it. And sometimes as Christians, we believe that God is sovereign and we be- believe that God is all-knowing but some reason, we don't believe that God knows what's going on in our own hearts, what's going on in our own minds. And, and we think that, uh, that we can put on makeup as we come before God, and we can present ourselves as pretty. And God says, would you please trust me enough to be your ugly self in front of me? That's, that's part of what it means for me to know you. Um. This, uh, something that's extremely instructive uh, about this last half of this psalm is how much real estate it takes up in this psalm. So, the, the verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, it's dealing with a, a number of things that we've already talked about. But then the last half of the psalm is this, this unpolished, honest, rugged prayer. And... And, and I think that might be instructive for us. H- how much are we talking about our problems to people rather than talking to them, talking about them to our God? There's a couple of things that this, uh, there's really one main thing that the psalm is asking for. In verse 5, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. The rest of the, rest of the prayer is him articulating that same thought further, right? In verse, in verse 6, let them be like grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows, right? Let them be cut off completely. Um, 
with, the re, uh, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder the sheaves of his arms. Simply what he's saying is, I don't want them, I don't want them to live. I don't want them to be profitable. And then in verse 8 he says, um, nor do those who pass by say the blessing of the Lord be on them. I don't want them to receive any honor. I want them, those that have oppressed me, I want them utterly broken. And again, that's, that's ugly. Um, and, and, and if it wasn't in the canon, if it wasn't in the scripture, we might dare to say that's not very Christian of the psalmist. Um, you know, th- this sermon and uh, this platform it has, it is, has very little to do with me being a black man in America, right? So I, I don't want to spend all my time talking about that. But let me say, let me use this opportunity to say this. Um, over the last few years, there's been a resurgence via social media um, and, and kind of contemporary media outlets where, where black bodies are being killed by authority figures. And that, that's just the reality. And it's, and it's not necessarily a new reality, but it's a more televised, it's a more put out there reality. And every time it happens, it feels like a gut punch to me personally. Just this week, Philando Castile's murderer received $48,500 to leave the, the Minnesota Police Department. He was given a severance package. And um, the question is, how am I supposed to feel about that? And what am I supposed to do about that? And if you go, if I go to Facebook, uh, certain Facebook friends tell me this is how I should feel and this is how I should react to that. And, and, and if I go to my Twitter, I've got certain followers or people that I follow that says that this is the totally other way that I should think about this or I should, or I should handle that. And, and I think what the psalmist is saying to us first is we need to get our priorities right as to how we express our grief, how we process our, our pain. Like I said at the very beginning, he's given us, he's given us his people to process these things with. Um, but also, he's given us himself. He, he has a listening ear to us. And we've got to take advantage of that. Um. So part of what that means for me is when I see certain things in the news and, uh, and my Twitter fingers get to itching, I need to step back and I need to say, am I, am I really, am I taking the time um, to fully express how I'm feeling to the Lord? Am I really just trying to process this with a whole bunch of people around me? Am I trying to tell people how it is? And am I trying to, am I trying to say, if, if the world thought like I think, then everything would be okay? Or am I coming to God in all of my um, broken honesty and saying, God, this is how I feel about this. Do, would you do something? Would you step into it? I think that's what God is calling us all to, is that... Um, is that our, our prayer closets would be, um, would be more worn down um, than our keyboards. You know, perseverance in the Christian life is not just hard, it's actually impossible apart from the empowering 
of God's spirit that only comes through union in Christ and through faith in Christ. Christians can take great comfort that we're not the only ones that are, that are walking this road um, that, are, that are feeling like we've been gut punched when certain things happen to us. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ was the first one who, who endured um, a broken world and he, unlike all of us, was absolutely sinless, and he was betrayed, he was mistreated, he was, um, he was misunderstood, and ultimately he was murdered. The righteous judge was treated unrighteously. Um, and Hebrews tells us exactly why he did it. Why would Jesus persevere? He did it for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? Why, why, would Jesus, why would Jesus continue to take steps forward in this broken and fallen world when at any time, he even says at any time, he could ask ten, uh, 12 legions of angels to come and save him and deliver him. Why wouldn't he do that? He did it for the joy set before him, and that's you and I. The Lord Jesus Christ loves you and loves me so much that he said whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll get spit on. I'll get my beard plucked out. Um, I'll get beaten. I'll get a crown of thorns put on my head. There, there's nothing that I, I will even, I'll even do the unthinkable. I will absorb the full cup of the wrath of God if that means I get to have them. The Lord Jesus loves us. He cares about us. He's provided a way f forward for us. He's given us his people that we might lock arms with them. He's promised his own presence, even if in the moment we can't feel it. And he's given us this open door of prayer. And not just like the prayer that you pray before you eat a meal. It's an, it's an honest prayer. It's a nobody else is around and is going to hear the language that you say kind of prayer. He says, you can come to me with the true grit of your soul, and I'm going to hear you out. And for that reason, we got to step forward and persevere. God has done all the persevering for us. Now we've got we've to tap in to his means to continue on into the celestial city. Um, pray with us. Or pr pray with me, and I'll bring the band back up. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, and thank you that there are saints of old um, that are not unfamiliar with the, with the trials that are in our lives. Lord Jesus, you love us. You love us so much that you've given us brothers and sisters that we can trust. Help us to trust. You love us so much that you've promised your presence to us, that you are loyal to us. God, help us to cling to that even when it, we don't feel it. Lord Jesus, you have promised um, that, you are, that, that your door is always open, that the channel is always connected between you and ourselves. Lord Jesus, be gracious to us. Um, and help us to pour our, our souls before, us, before you. God, you're good. And we're so thankful that we are your children and that you are our God. And I, and I pray even now that if, if someone is attempting, in this room is attempting to go through life, the fiery trials that is life without Christ as Lord and as King, even now would you draw their hearts to repentance. Pray that in Christ's name.